0: We have Yom Kippur upcoming in a couple of days, and every year I try to tackle a different angle of this amazing day. If you remember a couple of years ago, we did a two-part series on the Kabbalistic and mystical depths of the short book that we read on Yom Kippur afternoon, the Book of Jonah. And I've done over my career – over a 1,000 episodes, and I think none of them elicited quite the same reaction to the one on Jonah. So we did a couple of years ago, but I plan on rebroadcasting it later on this week on the Parsha podcast. I hope all of y'all are subscribed to that, not just for the Jonah podcast, but because there are some amazing other content featured on the Parsha podcast. So that is something we did in the past, and we've done other angles on Yom Kippur in the past. And today I want to try to cover a critical aspect of Yom Kippur, one that we cannot ignore. And that is the aspect of individual and personal reconciliation and forgiveness and try to focus on the interpersonal component of Yom Kippur. And later on we'll do also tips and tricks for earning a positive outcome on Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur is upcoming and it is a marvelous day. It's a day of cleansing and purification. We enter Yom Kippur. We're sullied with sin. Our soul is bedecked with blemishes. And what do you know? We emerge from Yom Kippur with a clean slate. Our sins are expunged. Our blemishes are remediated. Our spiritual maladies are healed. What an amazing day. What a powerful day a day of total transformation. There's a book of Talmud and Mishnah on Yom Kippur, and the name of the book is Yomah, which means the day. Well, which day is it? Is it Labor Day? Is it Veterans Day? Is it Memorial Day? Is it Independence Day? No. When you're talking about one day, that's the day, the day that everything changes. That is Yom Kippur, and thus we can legitimately label that day as Yomah, just that day. This is the most powerful and auspicious day of the year. This is the day that everything changes. This is the day that Moshe descended from heaven the third time with the second set of tablets. This is the day that we secured full forgiveness for the sin of the golden calf. And that experience of cleansing and purification is revisited each year. We enter the day contaminated and we emerge purified. The verse tells us, Leviticus 16.30, Ki bayom on this day, on Yom Kippur, aleichem, the mighty will atone for us. eshem to purify us, mikol from all our sins, lifnei Hashem, close to God, we shall become pure. This is the day, more than any other, that we are close to God. This is the day of purification. And on this day, the mighty promises to cleanse us and purify us from all our sins. What... An incredible day. Now, we spoke last time how Yom Kippur is a day of alchemy, of transformation, but it hinges on a critical effort on our part. We have to repent. Provided that we repent, Yom Kippur cleanses us from all our sins, cleanses us from all our iniquities, cleanses us from all our spiritual flaws. But there is a whole other component of this that that we must discuss at length, and that is the interpersonal side of this discussion. In the aforementioned book of Yoma, on page 85B, we read the following. Darash Rabbi Eliezer Ben-Azariah, one of the great sages of the Mishnah, he expounded. The verse says, From all your sins before God, you shall become Purified. Only on transgressions between man and God does Yom Kippur provide atonement. But on transgressions between man and one's fellow, Yom Kippur does not provide atonement until you appease your fellow. Yom Kippur is a day of purification, cleansing, expiation, atonement. But that only works for sins and transgressions between man and God. The interpersonal sins? Well, for that, you have to appease your fellow. You have to resolve the grievances that they may have upon you. Now, if you read this Mishnah very critically, you'll see that Yom Kippur does atone for interpersonal sins, provided that we appease our fellow. Again, what does the Mishnah say? Yom Kippur does not atone until you appease your fellow. So Yom Kippur is a day of atonement and cleansing for all sins, but with respect to sins between man and one's fellow, with respect to interpersonal transgressions, those violations must be dealt with the aggrieved person themselves in order for the purification of Yom Kippur to apply to them. So in your Kippur, the money is going to purify us from all our transgressions with respect to the sins we've been on God while we repent and then he cleanses us. And with respect to the interpersonal sins, for that we need to appease and assuage and mollify our fellow to earn that cleansing. And therefore, it's very central to the whole day, the idea of interpersonal relationships. And that's an aspect That we cannot overlook. So the plan today is twofold. Number one, we want to understand exactly how to gain atonement for interpersonal transgressions. And in general, we want to discuss the nature of interpersonal transgressions and the sensitivity required to not cause another person any pain or any loss. Okay. That's the plan. And let us begin. So the Talmud tells us in the book of Yoma, page 87A, Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak says, if a person causes pain to his fellow man, even if it's only verbal, it's only words, you have to appease them. Even verbal violations, you ridicule someone, you insult someone, you embarrass someone, you curse someone, that demands a request of forgiveness an appeasement, from the aggrieved person in order for the transgressor to achieve atonement. The Talmud's telling us that it's not only the the tangible interpersonal violations, you damage them, you injure them, you cause them a monetary loss, it's not only that that demands a forgiveness, even if it is only verbal, non-tangible transgressions, they too, Require reconciliation. Indeed, the Ramam tells us in Laws of Repentance, Chapter Two, Law Number Nine: "Einat tshuva yom kippur mechaprim." Tshuva, repentance, and yom kippur does not atone only for sins between man and God. If someone eats something non-kosher, for example, that's a violation of the contract, the pact between man and God. If someone engages in forbidden intercourse, that's a violation of the relationship to man and God. For that, repentance, Yom Kippur works. But transgressions, human and one's fellow, for example, someone who hits, who strikes physically his friend, or someone curses his friend, or someone steals from his friend, and matters the like. You're not forgiven for that forever until you compensate your friend what you owe them and you appease them. Even if you return the money that you owe, you must appease them and request their forgiveness until they accede to that request and indeed forgive you. And the ramam concludes, even if you only caused verbal pain, you diminished, you insulted, you ridiculed your friend verbally, you must Appease them and you must entreat upon them to forgive you. So if you have a monetary violation, the Rum tells us you have to make amends, you got to pay up what you owe, and you also have to ask for forgiveness. And even if it was only verbal, you have to appease them and beg them and implore them until they forgive you. Now when we study the Torah, we see the incredible sensitivity and delicateness of how we must treat other people and how careful we have to be not to cause any other person pain. A very striking and terrifying example of this is featured in the Talmud the book of Bavabasra, page 16a. It's talking about Panina and Chana, Hannah. And it tells us Penina l'shem Shemaim nestavna. Penina, her intentions were noble, were heavenly. Now, who are these people? These people are co-wives of a gentleman named Elkanah. We read the story in the beginning of Samuel, one chapter one. There's a man named Elkanah, and he has two wives, one named Penina. And Panina has loads of children, ten, according to the Midrash. And Hannah, Hannah, is completely barren. She is totally infertile. And Panina teased and tormented Hannah, says the Talmud. She did it with noble intentions. She did it in order to motivate her co-wife to pray to God to have the Almighty resolve her infertility. And the Midrash elaborates that Panina would cause Hannah pain and anger amid anger. And What would she do? In the morning, she would wake up, and she would tell Hannah, aren't you getting up to give your kids a bath? Of course, Hannah's barren, and it's a very painful thing for a woman To be alone, not to have any children, especially when she has a co-wife, which of course is a source of tremendous competition, and she has 10 children, and Hannah has zero, and now she's teasing her and saying, well, did you wash your kid's face today? And then in the afternoon, oh, are you going outside to wait for your kids to come back from school? And Panina would deliberately invoke the fact that she has children and Hannah is barren. And Why? Why was Penina so cruel in teasing and tormenting Hannah? Says the Talmud. This was noble. She had righteous intentions. She wanted to spur her to pray, to storm the heavens in prayer, to get the Almighty to make a miracle for her. Penina has 10 children. Hannah has zero children. Penina is tormenting and teasing Hannah. And indeed, Hannah prays, and a miracle happens. And she bears a son who goes on to be one of the most significant people in all of Jewish history, the great prophet Samuel. Sounds like it's a great story. It sounds like it has a happy ending. But no, something else happened. We read in Samuel, Samuel 1, chapter 2, Verse number five. This is part of Hannah's prayer after Samuel is born. While the barren woman now has seven children, the mother of many, the woman who previously had so many children, she is now alone. Hannah, the barren woman, she bore seven children. But Panina, her co-wife, who used to tease and torment her, she was punished, and the midrash tells us that with every child born to Hannah, Penina buried two of hers, so when Samuel was born, Panina lost two of her ten children, and then Hannah had a second child, and Panina buried now four, and Hannah had a third child, and Panina buried six. And Hannah had a fourth child, and Panina buried eight. And then Hannah was pregnant with a fifth child. She now has four, she's going to have five, and Panina's down to two. She's buried eight of her children. And Panina starts crying and prostrates herself in front of Hannah and says, please forgive me for all the pain that I caused you. And at that moment, Hannah prayed to God, And said to God, Master of the world, forgive her and spare her last two remaining children. And the Almighty responded to their prayer and says, you know what? For the pain that she caused you, she deserves to lose them all. But because you prayed for her, I'm going to spare those two. So Hannah bore a fifth child. And the two remaining children of Panina survived. And thus the barren woman, had seven because the only reason why Panina's last two children survived, that was thanks to the intercession and the prayer and the forgiveness of Hannah. This is, of course, a very terrifying story. And we see how severely Panina was punished for words, for teasing her co-wife, Hannah. You know, the Talmud tells us that... She had righteous and noble intentions. Yes, of course, she cruelly teased Hannah when Hannah was barren, but it had a righteous purpose. It was for the purpose of helping her, of trying to spur and coach her to pray. So if she had righteous intentions, why was she punished so severely? There's a deep insight over here. This is teaching us the Torah's view, on causing another person pain. There is never a justification to cause another person pain. If you pain another person, if you tease them, I don't care if it is righteous, that is fire. And if you play with fire, you may get burnt. The good intentions do not spare you from the severe consequences of causing another person pain. I'll give you another example. Who is a better person to bring an example from than Moshe? We read in the beginning of the book of Exodus, Moshe is a shepherd. He has a very dramatic experience by the burning bush. And God says to him, I want you to go save a nation suffering, being enslaved, being tormented, being oppressed, being murdered in Egypt, when you take them out of Egypt and when you bring them to the land of Canaan. Now, this is not just any nation. This is the Jewish nation. These are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who are the nation that's going to be, that's destined to be the Almighty's representatives in this world. So Moshe is being told by God, I want you to undertake the most important consequential mission of all time. Take the nation of Egypt, effectuate the giving of Torah at Sinai, and bring the nation into Israel. And if you read what happened, Moshe was not so eager to accept this offer. He tells the Almighty, well, how could I speak to Pharaoh? I'm not worthy. No one's going to listen to me. What's What name should I say that you presented yourself as? And say just tell us that Moshe objected to undertaking this mission for seven days with multiple objections. And each objection, the mighty responds to. And then Moshe has a final objection. Send Aaron. I have an older brother. Send him instead of me. And Rashi tells us that really that was the only objection. He didn't want to one-up his older brother, to make his older brother feel bad that Moshe is getting all the glory he didn't want to embarrass or cause shame to Aaron, or cause him any envy, and that was the real objection. Everything else was an excuse. And the Almighty gets angry at Moshe, and the Almighty says, "Aaron, you're worried about Aaron. When he sees you, and when he sees you, when he sees you, he'll be happy and glad in his heart." Aaron, the Almighty testifies, is the only person we know of that has not a scintilla or shred of envy. And therefore, what are you worried about? Aaron's not going to be envious. He's not going to be envious, and therefore you could lead the nation. Now, if you read this very critically, you discover an amazing insight. Moses told, go save a nation in dire straits. They're being murdered, they're being tormented, they're enslaved, they need a salvation. You go do it. And Moshe responds, what about Aaron? He'll be offended. And what's the Almighty's counter to that? The Almighty's counter to that is not, Aaron's offended, who cares? Some, someone gets offended? We have a nation to save. That's not his response. His response is, Aaron, you worried about Aaron? He'll be happy for you. He won't have any envy. Implicit in the Almighty's response to Moshe, what would have happened had Aaron indeed been envious of Moshe's glory, that would be a good enough reason to abort the mission. The Almighty's responding to Moshe, not saying your claim is baseless. The idea of one person suffering, who cares about that when there's a nation suffering? He's saying your idea is sound. However, factually, you are incorrect because Aaron happens to be the one person who is happy when others thrive and shine and even when his younger brother takes all the glory. But what would have been, had Aaron been like any other person, that would have caused them pain? You know what, Moshe, in that case, you would have been right. Had Aaron had envy and pain, Moshe would have been justified to discard this mission, the dire needs of the people notwithstanding. Why? Don't we say the ends justify the means? Don't we say you got to crack a few eggs to make a decent omelet. Moshe is teaching us a lesson. If you want to do something great, if you want to do something noble, you cannot trample on someone else's feelings. If the mighty wants to save the nation, I'm not doing it if I have to trample on Aaron's feelings. That's not a justification for me to go save the people. Let the mighty do it himself. I'm not doing it. Send Aaron. Send someone else. We don't say, the ends justify the means. Let me trample a couple of people. Let me pay a small price to accomplish this great mission. Indeed, had Aaron been aggrieved, that would be a good reason to abort the whole mission. There was a story about a great lecturer, an orator, his name was Rabbi Shalom Shvadron. He's one of the great speakers in recent years lived in Israel. So there was a yeshiva that the dean of the yeshiva was going on a fundraising trip. It was going to take many months and there was no one to give speeches in the yeshiva. And he was offered with the possibility, with the, he was given the offer, why don't you, when the dean is out of town, you instead replace him and you give the speeches. You're, after all, a fiery orator. You'll inspire the students. You give the speeches in his stead. But he was worried, what's going to be? I'm going to give speeches. And he knew that he was a very talented orator. And then the original dean comes back and no one wants to listen to him. Because he's dry, not so exciting, not so fiery. Ah, I remember the old guy. He was much better. So what should I do? Should I take the job or not? So he went to the great mashgiach of Ponovich, the great Rav Levenstein, and he responded like this. Listen to this. We have a tradition that if there's an opportunity to build the third temple, the hope and the yearning of our nation for millennia, but there is potentially a risk and a concern of causing someone else pain, we don't build a temple. That is not how the temple gets built. That is the sensitivity that we have against causing another person pain. That is the severity that we treat this subject with. It is totally intolerable. And you know what? If someone caused another person pain, even if it's verbal alone, you could fast for a thousand days. You could repent for a hundred Yom Kippur's. But unless you secure forgiveness from the aggrieved party, that will forever remain on your record. You will never be cleansed from this transgression. You have to go and approach the person who was aggrieved and secure their forgiveness. Now, what do you do if the person does not want to forgive you? Says the Talmud, Rabbi Yossi Barchanina says, if you ask forgiveness from your fellow, don't ask more than three times. So what you do is you ask once, and you ask twice, and you ask a third time, and you try to get that person's friends and colleagues and acquaintances to go beseech on your behalf. And if you're unsuccessful, after three times you stop. The person who doesn't want to forgive you, who has a stone heart, He's the sinner, not you. Now, what's the logic of stopping after three times? So, The commentaries tell us that there's a principle in the Talmud called chazakah which means an assumption that is born out of three times something happened uh, one after another. If a person refuses a genuine and sincere request for forgiveness, we understand that that is their position and they are unflinching and they will never forgive you. But by him not forgiving you, he is sinning because he is cruelly rejecting your overtures for reconciliation. And therefore, if you're going to ask a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh time, because we know it's futile, he already rejected it three times, you're causing him to sin needlessly, and therefore you stop after three times. Now, the Talmud gives us an interesting story about requesting forgiveness It tells of the great sage named Rav. Rav is essentially the founder of the great academy in Babylon. But when he was still in Israel, he was giving a lecture essentially in front of all the great sages, in front of the great Rabbi Judah the Prince. And he started giving a lecture, and Rabbi Judah the Prince is listening. And then another sage wants in. Walks in. So he's halfway through the lecture. What do you do when the great sage comes and joins? You have to start from the beginning. So he goes back to the beginning. He says, okay, I'll restart it for you. And then another person wants in. Bar Kapara in. He says, you know what? I've, I've given the first half of the lecture once, now twice. I'll go back to the beginning and I'll start again for the benefit of Bar And then he's halfway through the lecture and then a third person walks in. And again, he starts in the beginning. And again, he is halfway through a lecture and the great Rabbi Hanina walked in and he says, that's it. <laughs> I've started this lecture now. Four times, I'm not doing it again. You have to just, I'm just continuing. So Rabbi Hanina, he felt bad. You restarted your lecture for all these people, not for me. And he said, I have a grievance against you. So Rav came to Rabbi Hanina to go secure forgiveness. And every Arab Yom Kippur for 13 years, every Arab Yom Kippur, they have for Yom Kippur, he went to Rohanina and he refused to be appeased. And the Talmud interjects the question, wait a minute, 13 times? Isn't three the limit? How could Rav ask forgiveness for 13 times? Well, the Talmud tells us clearly, if that's three times, that's it. Says the Talmud, Rav Shani, Rav is different. Now, what exactly this means is a dispute. Rashi understands that this means Rav as in the person named Rav, the person who's asking for forgiveness. And even though normally most people you ask forgiveness three times and that's it, he wanted to be more, more strict with himself. So he asked even more times. The Rambam says Rav means a master, a teacher. Because Rav Hanina was Rav's teacher, if, if you cause pain to your teacher, there is no limit. You asked him even a thousand times until they forgive you. Now, there's an interesting epilogue to this story. The Talmud asks, wait a minute. Rav offended Rav Hanina, and Rav asked forgiveness one year, two years, a third year, a fourth year, a fifth year, 13 years, didn't forgive him. Why did Rav Hanina not forgive Rav? Don't we know that if you forgo your grievance, the Talmud tells us, then the Almighty forgoes all the grievances that you did to him. If you forgive other people, the Almighty will forgive you. So why was Rav Hanina resistant to the requests of forgiveness of Rav? So the Talmud tells us, really really interesting, Rav Hanina was the head of the academy in Israel. And he had a dream where he saw Rav being suspended from a palm tree, which is a pretty interesting dream, you'd imagine. But there was a tradition that he knew of that whenever you see someone in a dream suspended from a palm tree, that means that that person is destined to become the head of the yeshiva. Now, he himself was the head of the yeshiva. So he says, I have a problem. I'm the head of the yeshiva. I know Rav is destined to be the head of the yeshiva. And if I forgive him, he's going to take over my position. And therefore, what I want to do is to not forgive him in order to cause him to leave town and to move to Babylon. Because I know Rav is needed in Babylon. And he's going to open up the academy there. And he's going to unleash the great power of the Babylonian Torah world. And therefore, I don't want to forgive him. I want to reject his entreaties of forgiveness in order to spur him to go have his wean, sort of, to go, to go release his power and energy in Babylon. And indeed, Rav went to Babylon and founded the Great Academy there. And the rest, of course, is history. So, if you are someone who caused someone else pain, even if it's minor pain, even if it's verbal pain, certainly if it's monetary pain. Before Yom Kippur, there is a tradition that we want to go and get forgiveness. Why? Because our purification of Yom Kippur does not happen for sins that occur to a corrupt man with his fellow for interpersonal transgressions, unless we ask and receive their forgiveness. Now, it's very important. On the flip side, if you were aggrieved, it's imperative that you be gracious in accepting the apologies of the person who wronged you. The Talmud tells us that the great sages, when someone else did something wrong to them, they would try to encourage the person who did something bad to them to request forgiveness. They would avail themselves to the other person. They would seek it out, so to speak, to enable the other person to have the opportunity to request For forgiveness. Zera the Talmud tells us, when someone insulted him, he would walk back and forth and back and forth in front of that person to try to spur that person to request forgiveness. The Talmud gives us also another wild story about uh, Rav, so the same person, different episode with Rav. There was a butcher, a local butcher, who insulted Rav. Now, if you think about that, that's like a crazy thing. Rav was one of the most important people of all Jewish history. He, together with Shmuel, is the founder of Babylonian, of the Babylonian Torah universe in the third century, early part of the third century of the Common Era. One of the most significant rabbis and sages of our history. And some butcher offended Rav. So Rav said, you know what? it's a dem for him, Kippur. I want to make sure that the guy gets forgiveness. So I'm going to go over to him and I'm going to ask him for forgiveness, which is a nice tactic. When you know that someone does not wrong to you, there was an altercation, but really they're at fault. If you really want them to secure forgiveness, what you do is you apologize to them and that allows them to save face and they say, you know what? I was really in the wrong and I really feel bad and you really don't need to ask apologies for me. I'll ask apologies for you. It's a way to kind of help ease the other person to rectify and reconcile. So Rav says, you know what? Really, they should come to me. The butcher should come to me. I'm going to go to the butcher. On the way, he meets his student, Ravhuna. And Rav Huna says, where are you going? It's Erev Yom Kippur. Where are you going on this on, on this uh, trip? He says, I'm going to, the butcher, I'm going to appease him. So, Ravuna says, what's going to end up happening is someone's going to die here. This is not going to end up well. Why this person, if he's not extra sensitive to the feelings of the great rabbi, it's not going to end up well for him. So, Rav arrives at the butcher shop. And the butcher, the Talmud tells us, is hacking away at the meat. And he's taking a, a hammer and smashing the heads of the animals. And he looks up and he sees Rav. He says, Are you Abba, which was Rav, Rav's first name. So he called him by his first name, which is, of course, degrading. Go away. I have nothing to do with you. I don't need to talk to you. I don't want to talk to you. Get out of my face. That's what he told Rav when Rav came to him to try to reconcile on Arab Yom Kippur. And right then, as he's smashing the bones of the animal, one of the bones flew back in his face, embedded itself in his throat, and killed him on the spot. Ravuna's prediction indeed came true. It's an amazing story. Rav went out of his way to secure a forgiveness for this butcher, but he butchered it. And because he denigrated the great rabbi, He indeed deserved to die. Tells us the Rambam, a person should not be cruel when someone asks them for forgiveness. Rather, they should be noach lirzos, easily appeased and difficult to make, angry. And when the transgressor, when the aggriever requests for forgiveness, they should forgive with a whole heart and with a desiring soul. And even if they caused you a lot of pain, don't take revenge. Don't bear a grudge. This is the way of the children of Israel. And he says the, the idolaters are not quite like that. He brings the example of the Gevonim, the Gibbonites, who wanted blood, who refused the requests and overtures of reconciliation and appeasement. That's not our way. Now, there's a final interesting question. What do you do if you caused another person, pain or loss, and they're dead now. And obviously you cannot ask them for forgiveness. So the law is that you go to their grave and you bring 10 people and you say in front of those 10 people by the grave of the aggrieved person, I have sinned to the Almighty God of Israel and to this person who's buried here. I did this and this. You spell out what you did. And if you owe that person money, you give it to the heirs. And if you don't know who the heirs are, you give it to the court. And then you've done what you can to secure forgiveness. So what do we have over here? We have an amazing day. It's Yom Kippur. It's an amazing day and it is a golden opportunity. The mighty is handing out pardons to anyone who asks for it. The Mighty is dispensing purity to all of those who seek it. It's a day of spiritual cleansing, of spiritual restoration, and that's being handed out freely. But we cannot forget the other aspect of Yom Kippur. Any grievances that others have towards us, Yom Kippur will not work to heal them. We have to secure forgiveness from those people. And when we go, the Talmud says, we have to try to appease them. It's not just to make a perfunctory shallow request for forgiveness, we have to genuinely express our feelings of what we did. And of course, it's not easy. Asking for forgiveness demands that we humble ourselves, and we all have a very hard time admitting guilt, but this is an integral part of the Yom Kippur transformation. And on the flip side, we have to try to be very magnanimous in forgiving others. And you know what? It's hard. When we were wronged, it stings. It's painful. And it's really hard to let go of that pain. And we could harbor ill will for years and years against someone who wronged us. But on Yom Kippur, we have to try to find the reservoirs of benevolence, muster up that feeling that we can forgive others and just Drop the grudge, drop the grievance, and move on. Of course, we know that bearing your grudge is quite useless. There's that old saying, if you hold the grudge, it's like swallowing a poison pill and expecting the other person to die. It's fruitless. When you maintain the tension and the discomfort and the grudge with someone else, you gain nothing all you have is agony and one fewer friend and there's nothing quite as liberating as forgiving someone and letting that grudge be removed from your conscience drop the baggage you feel much better but there's also an extra perk if we want god to forgive us and of course all of us do the Talmud tells us one of the ways to get god to forgive us is by us Forgiving others. if whoever, whoever forgoes their grievance, the Almighty forgoes the grievance that He has towards that person. And therefore, we all want forgiveness from God. And we all wronged God. He did good to us and we responded with bad to Him. We want His forgiveness. One of the ways that we secure His forgiveness is by us forgiving others. The way we treat others is the way God treats us. Moreover, by us being a forgiving person, we become a tool for accessing all kinds of godly goodness. The Talmud gives a story in the book of Titus, page 25b. There was no rain. And the great rabbi gets up and says 24 blessings and doesn't get answered. And then Rabbi Akiva He gets up and says, We have no God, no king besides for you. Have mercy upon us. And right away, it started raining. And everyone started kind of uh, feeling a little bit uncomfortable. The great rabbi, Rabbi Yezer, gets up and there's no rain. And then Rabbi Atiba gets up and it starts raining. It seems like we know who's a greater sage. And they hear a prophetic voice. Don't think the Rebbe is a greater sage? No. His quality over Rebbe Eliezer is that he forgoes his grievances and this one does not forgo his grievances. And therefore, when you forgo grievances done to you by others, you become a tool for accessing all kinds of godly goodness. And the general idea is that by not forgiving other people, we are a bit hypocritical. Why? Because we know about ourselves that we consider ourselves to be relatively good people, even though we make mistakes sometimes. And therefore, if we don't afford that same charitable treatment to other people, it's not consistent. We have to say, you know what, that person's also a good person, and they also make mistakes like I do. And to help facilitate that, there is a universal custom at the onset of Yom Kippur to say the Tfilas Zaka. You find it at the beginning of the Yom Kippur Machsar, and part of this prayer at the onset of Yom Kippur says the following, I know that there is no righteous person in the world who never sins between man and his fellow, either monetarily or physically, in deeds or in speech, and therefore my heart feels bad, we say in this prayer, because with respect to sins you man and one's fellow, Yom Kippur does not atone until you secure appeasement of your fellow. And therefore, you make the following declaration. I extend complete forgiveness to everyone who has transgressed against me, whether physically or monetarily, gossiped about me, slandered me. If someone's injured me, I want to forgive them. And you know what? We request that if we cause pain to other people, the Almighty will inspire them to forgive us as well. Yom Kippur, we want to emerge from it completely cleansed from all various forms of spiritual maladies, both the sin of man and God and man and our fellow. May we all emerge from Yom Kippur with a clean slate, like a new person purified in the waters of atonement that are absolutely plentiful, on this day. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. You can always email me any questions or any comments of any sort. rabbiwalby at gmail.com.